This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis. Welcome to Kick-Ass News. It's the one thing that none of us ever want to experience and most of us never want to talk about. And yet, for every living creature, it is the one certainty. Death, the grim reaper, the big sleep, biting the dust, taking a dirt nap, kicking the can, or buying the farm. By any name, it is unavoidable, and yet we still try. Dot-com billionaires like Jeff Bezos throw their fortunes at sometimes shaky science in a desperate effort to extend their own expiration dates. The rules of polite society dictate that the very subject of death is awkward and taboo. Popular culture portrays it as something horrific, the worst imaginable outcome. And an entire industry has perfected the art of disposing the recently deceased before we the living can even notice they're gone. But my guest today says our aversion to death is unwarranted and actually unhealthy to those trying to cope with the loss. What's more, she says America's squeamishness over all things death-related is almost unique in the world compared to other countries that not only accept it, but celebrate it. And she's at the forefront of a movement to change how the U.S. funeral industry and the American public approach death and mourning. Caitlin Doty is the happy-go-lucky mortician behind the alternative funeral home called Undertaking L.A., and she's the founder of the Order of the Good Death, a nonprofit that seeks to foster a more death-informed society. This best-selling author has just written her second book, titled From Here to Eternity, Traveling the World to Find Good Death. And today she joins me on the podcast to reveal how America's funeral industrial complex overcharges and overregulates how we say goodbye to our loved ones and how funerals went from private family affairs to big business in just a century. She shares how villagers in Indonesia sleep, eat, and interact with their deceased on a daily basis and how high-tech innovations are revolutionizing how the dearly departed are honored in Japan. She tells of a community in Colorado that forgoes the boring funeral home cremation in favor of an old-fashioned funeral pyre and a green advocate in North Carolina who wants to compost your corpse. She says it's all part of a movement to give families more options in how they say goodbye, and she wants you to know your rights when dealing with the loss of a loved one. Plus, she tells me what a dead body smells like and whether or not I can have a Viking funeral. Coming up with Caitlin Doty in just a moment. Caitlin Doty is mortician, activist, and self-described funeral industry rabble-rouser known for advocating death acceptance and the reform of Western funeral industry practices. She's the owner and proprietor of her own alternative funeral home, Undertaking L.A., and she's the founder of the Order of the Good Death, an inclusive community of funeral industry professionals, academics, as well as artists who advocate for a more death-informed society. She's also the creator and the host of the popular web series Ask a Mortician, which has garnered over 17 million views on YouTube, and author of the best-selling book Smoke Gets in Your Eyes and Other Lessons from the Crematory. 
Caitlin Doty has just completed her second book titled From Here to Eternity, Traveling the World to Find Good Death. Caitlin, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Well, this was a very entertaining and eye-opening book. You know, it's funny how we spend our whole lives trying to cheat the inevitable. You talk at length about how our society has done everything we can to avoid death and to push it out of sight. Is it more than a coincidence that you're releasing this book during the only time of the year, really, when people in America actually think about death, October? Uh, yeah. Are you talking about Halloween? Yes. <laughs> it's so interesting. People, it doesn't matter when I put out the book, people will be, will say, okay, we're holding the publicity until October 29th <laughs> really? or October 31st. And it's like, oh, <laughs> I might as well just put out the book on October 31st. Yeah. And you know, what I do talking about death and talking about mortality and our relationship to mortality, that doesn't have a huge amount to do with Halloween, but right. it's so interesting that that's really our only reference point <laughs> for it in the United States. And the fact that, you know, I do like Halloween. It, the border between the living and the dead is thinned. You can you can interact with mortality in a mm -hmm. way that you might not normally be able to, even if you're the type of person who's like, ew, I would never talk about death. I would never do anything about death. <laughs> but I'm a slutty ghost. You know, <laughs> yeah. okay, well, if that's if that's your entry level to death and the idea of death, we welcome you and we hope that's a gateway drug <laughs> for you to go deeper into addressing your own mortality. Yeah, well, I find it fascinating how Americans' attitudes toward death and funerals have changed over the past hundred years or so. Uh, we were just talking right before we started, kind of the dirty little secret that I don't think my listeners know, this has probably never come up, is that we actually record this. My studio is in an old hundred-year-old funeral home. Um, in the old days, people would lay grandpa out in the parlor and bury him in the backyard or a churchyard, but then... At some point, cemeteries were pushed to the outskirts of cities, and this relatively new idea of funeral homes came about that recreated the home funeral setting in a mortuary, even calling them funeral parlors, while at the same time, the parlor in your home suddenly became the quote-unquote living room. How have we gone in such a short period of time from having very intimate family affairs to outsourcing our loved ones the moment they expire? That's a really great, succinct description you gave, and that's absolutely what's happened, and it's remarkable how quickly it's happened. So really, if you know what embalming is, embalming is the chemical preservation of the dead body. And in America, that started during the Civil War. It was northerners going down to fight in the south, dying on the battlefield, and families wanting to preserve their bodies to bring them back up north, which is a totally reasonable desire. Families took care of the bodies and they wanted to see their fallen sons once more. But what happened is that it very quickly became a business even after the war ended. Chemical companies would travel around the United States selling their embalming chemicals and selling these workshops for people to learn how to be embalmers. <laughs> and then it became, okay, well, I'm a professional. And I'm going to chemically preserve this dead body. And you, the family, are no longer qualified to do so. You've got to bring your body in. You've got to go to the professionals. And it was about the same time that hospitals were becoming professionalized. People weren't dying at home anymore. Slaughterhouses were becoming centralized. People weren't killing their own animals anymore. So in one fell swoop, death, which was such an intimate part of our lives, was 
removed from our society. And that's why we have this, you know, fast forward 100 years. That's why we have this distant, strained, only at Halloween relationship (laughs) with death today. And this book, I guess, is just one cog in a movement that you're very much a part of to reject or at least offer alternatives to the funeral industrial complex. Uh, What are your biggest problems with modern commercial funeral homes? We call ourselves the the death positive movement. And (laughs) that doesn't mean your mom died. You should just get over it and feel really positive about it. That's Mm -hmm. not what that means at all. What we mean is it's okay to be interested in death. It's okay to be interested in these histories and rituals and stories. It's not morbid or wrong to think that we have a problem with the way that we do things. And my biggest problem with the industry is, I explained a little bit about embalming, most people have no idea that it's not legally required at all to embalm their loved one and that you can politely decline at the funeral home. But some funeral directors, not even trying to, they may not even know this themselves, but they'll tell the family, well, we'd love to to not embalm it, but unfortunately it really is the law. It really is the regulations. And that's just not true. So there's all sorts of things, you know, at a cemetery, they put big concrete vaults around the caskets and They'll tell families, well, it is a it is a requirement that we do that. It's not. It's their personal requirement. You could just it's completely legal. It's their policy because they want to make it easier to landscape the grass. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So which is totally true. I'm not making that up. And. So, yeah, you can not chemically embalm a body. You can just dig a small, shallow hole in the ground and wrap the body in a beautiful shroud and some flowers and put the dirt on yourself as a family. That's all totally legal. But as you said, the funeral industrial complex doesn't want you to know that. And I'm not claiming it's some vast conspiracy. They've just been doing it that way for so long. A lot of them believe it, that that (laughs) is the only way to do it. But there's just people now who say, wait a minute, I want to be more involved than that. I want more access to to spearheading this myself. This was my mom. I don't want to just hand her over to someone else when I die. Yeah, and you talk about natural funerals where they just put you in a shroud and then lower you into the grave without a casket or any enclosure. Um, there's even someone who's modernizing it and trying to go green with burials and trying to compost corpses. Um, Is there something of a libertarian revolt going on against this commercial funeral industry right now? There absolutely is. And what's fascinating about this is it's such strange bedfellows because Mm -hmm. it's really these these older, very liberal, almost hippie types who want the natural burial. And their biggest allies are the libertarians Mm -hmm. because it's this group saying, hey, you know, and and the ones who are most responsible for actually changing the laws in America are the libertarian groups and libertarian lawyers because they're saying, hey, wait a second. Why is the American funeral industry so heavily regulated to benefit these specific companies that young people can't enter the funeral industry? There's there's a concept called ready to embalm, which is my least favorite thing (laughs) in the world. And what it is, I believe it's 29 states that have this, and it requires you, even if you don't intend to offer embalming at your funeral home at all, you have to be, quote, ready to embalm at any time, like a body is going to fall from the sky and you've like (laughs) got an emergency, chemically preserve it. And you have to pay the hundreds of thousands of dollars it requires to set up that kind of facility, even if it doesn't, it's not something you're going to offer at all. 
So it's impossible. The barrier to entry for a young funeral director or a minority funeral director or an immigrant funeral director Mm -hmm. is so high that it's just impossible. And one of the one of the keystone libertarian cases was a group of monks in the South that after Hurricane Katrina was building these beautiful, simple wooden caskets and trying to sell them. And the funeral board went, oh, no, excuse me, you can't, you're not a funeral director, you're not licensed, you can't sell caskets. <laughs> and they came in and, and sued and said, wait a second, yes, we yes we can. This is a simple casket. It's not, you know, we're not talking about now we're handling bodies or we're in yeah. charge of this. All we want to do is simple sell simple caskets, but the funeral lobby is so strong that they weren't letting them do it. And didn't you say, I think this also kind of goes into some religious liberty territories because Muslims and Jews don't believe in embalming. They still have to go through all this and have the embalming equipment available. Yes. So even though they're never going to use it. So if you're a Muslim person and there's a big Muslim presence in your community and you're trying to open that funeral home and they they Mm -hmm. don't believe they believe in burying the body very quickly with no invasive draining of the blood like Judaism um, and just a simple burial. And the fact that you would say, okay, you have to go to two years to a mortuary school to mm. learn the ins and outs of embalming for something you're never going to offer, one, and two, isn't even legally required. What are you guys doing? They have they have such a specific industry and model that they're trying to preserve that and, and less and less people want it. Frankly, Mm -hmm. people don't want embalming anymore. People don't want these big funerals anymore. They're too expensive and they just don't reflect. I'm not saying it's bad if you want that. Go ahead. It's certainly available to you. But it's just not reflecting what people really want anymore, in my opinion, and just from what what I hear doing this work. Mm -hmm. It almost reflects kind of where millennials are going in general, moving away from the ownership society, not wanting to have a burial plot reserved for you, not wanting to have a a big production and all that. You say that apparently cremation as a whole is on the rise. Now, how is the funeral industrial complex going to adjust to this? Because doesn't their whole business model revolve around selling burial plots and upselling you on the super deluxe titanium casket and that kind of thing. It does. And they, for years, cremation has been rising for years and they've they've seen the slow creep coming toward them. Mm-hmm. And you know, for, cremation has been around for so long, but they still go, oh, it's, it's, it's coming. <laughs> what are we going to do? And it's like, well, Adjust your model. Adjust, yeah. Figure figure it out. Don't spend so much money on overhead and these really expensive casket rooms and hearses to try and convince people this is what they have to do mm-hmm. because they don't want that. They want greener options. They want less expensive options. And these traditional funeral homes are not going to survive. We just went over 50% at cremation where now more people are cremated than oh, buried. Really? And we have new technology like alkaline hydrolysis or aquamation, which dissolves the body with high heat water as opposed to huh. flame. And more people want that. It's it's just going to continue moving away from this quote unquote traditional or conventional model. And funeral directors, if they really want what's best for their families and the people they're working with, have to face that, have to face some hard <laughs> truths in this area. 
There's one place where cremation is apparently even more popular right now. Uh, 99% of Japanese are cremated, not buried. Is that a function of the land shortage or what's behind that? There's a lot of cultural reasons behind that. At the beginning of the 20th century, they still had people being buried as well. But it is, I actually, when I was there in Japan for this book, there was a conversation that I had with a priest and he made fun of the way that Americans say, oh, I don't know about cemeteries. We're running out of land. And he's like, excuse me, we're the ones who don't have enough land to do this. You have more than enough land in America. You could Have you ever flown over the Midwest? You could put a cemetery anywhere. And that's true. We, we act like we don't have any land for cemeteries. But in, in Japan, they... They really don't have land. And, and Europe is like that as well. So for years, yeah. places in Europe and Japan have had much higher cremation rates mm -hmm. than America has. We've gotten away with for a long time with keeping the burial rate high because of the industry and because of the land that we have. You know, here in the U.S., we have this idea of burial in perpetuity. Apparently, that's not that common outside the U.S. Uh, how does that work elsewhere, like in Europe? There, I was actually on the phone with a reporter from Germany yesterday, and yeah. we were talking about this, and she was like, wait a second, are you saying that when you get a grave, you just get it forever? And she just couldn't wrap her yeah. mind around that. And I was like, well, here's the thing. When I tell people about what happens in Europe, which is that <laughs> when your body goes into a grave, you're essentially renting that yeah. grave. Your body is a <laughs> is a short-term renter. It has a sublease on this apartment <laughs> grave. And, you know, what depends on five years, 10 years, 20 years, your time is up after mm -hmm. you've decomposed and they remove your bones and they put it into a larger, you know, either like a charnel house or a larger grave and somebody else gets your spot. And they do this everywhere in Europe. And one place that I visited in Spain, they took me to the top of the hill and opened this manhole cover and I got to stick my head down the manhole <laughs> cover in the hill and it was bags of bones <laughs> and bags, you know, and just piles of bones and, and ash. And that's where everybody had gone in after yeah. they had spent their time in the grave. And it's fascinating because we have such an idea here of this is my special grave. Right. And I will be here forever and ever and ever. And that that is a part of the American death tradition. And I don't think we're going to be changing that anytime mm -hmm. soon. But if we're really concerned about land and we still want to be buried, this is an option that everywhere else has been doing for forever. Yeah, but, you know, I think in America we have such a stigma against the concept of a mass grave. We identify the mass grave with genocide. Exactly. Yeah. So that's that's one of the problems. But, you know, they have that in, in Europe, too. Mm -hmm. They have that idea, but it's still right. yeah, somehow they've been able yeah. to. And I really think, well, here's the thing, too, though. In America, only 30 years ago, cremation was the devil's work. Cremation was, you know, setting <laughs> really? up. There was associations with the Holocaust, associations with hell mm -hmm. for, for Christians, you know, associations with all of these very dark things. But if it's around a long, long time and it's seen as a less expensive option, as a more eco-friendly option, eventually people are going to change their mm -hmm. minds about it and the dialogue is going to change about it. So I'm not pushing for, <laughs> you know, mass graves at this point, but or communal graves at this point. But 
you know, anything is possible in the future mm -hmm. of death. Cultures change their death traditions all the time. <laughs> yeah, and in talking about cremation and these alternatives to conventional funerals, um, I touched upon earlier this small community in Colorado that is apparently the only place in America where people are allowed to cremate their loved ones in a funeral pyre, which I guess that's a ritual that goes back at least to the Roman times, right? What's the difference between a funeral pyre and conventional or commercial cremation? So it's this amazing community in Colorado, and it's actually the only open-air funeral pyre in the Western world entirely. <laughs> and it's this little community that has taken over death care. They've wrenched it away from the funeral homes, and they do it themselves in their community. When someone dies, they come to your house and prepare the body in the home. Wow. And then they take, at dawn, you know, two days later, they take the body up and they put it on this beautiful pyre and the smoke twirls up into the air and if you're a spiritual person you can't help but think that oh this is the 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 soul going up into it's just just gorgeous and out in nature and it makes me so jealous and so sad <laughs> as someone who has a funeral home in a big city like Los Angeles, because we have to take our families to this industrial crematory. Mm -hmm. And I love when people come in to what's called witness the cremation, mm -hmm. because I think that's a powerful ritual to be present for that. So we do encourage people to do that. But man, I wish I could take them out under the sky yeah. and set their mother alight in this ancient way, as opposed <laughs> to putting them in this big natural gas guzzling industrial machine in a warehouse. That's not that's not my ideal. And I hope that we can really improve our crematories in America, too, because as I said, 50, more than 50 percent of us are doing it now. We don't have to be it's like if everyone had to drive like a 1980 Dodge, you know, as opposed, like, no, we can do better than this. We, yeah. we can, it's, we can make this more beautiful. We can make this more comfortable. Yeah. And this funeral pyre option is so popular. Apparently there's a huge demand for it that people are actually buying land in Crestone, Colorado, just so they can get a right to a funeral pyre. Exactly. They so they require that the community, you know, they be a part of the community to because mm -hmm. they can't. Hindus are calling them. Native Americans are calling mm -hmm. them. Buddhists are calling them saying, hey, can we just come be cremated on your pyre? And they have to say no, unfortunately. So people are buying little plots of land or little houses in this rural Colorado area. There was a woman, I believe, who died of cancer pretty young, and she had bought a little piece of land, and her young daughter helped prepare her body, and they cremated her there, and it was quite beautiful. So, yeah, I, I understand. Wow. People, people, when they feel like they're not getting the death options that are really meaningful to them, whether because of their religion or the culture, it's really haunting and painful to know that you're not it's like when someone dies in a plane crash and you're not able to recover their remains mm -hmm. or someone dies in war and you're not able to recover them there's just always this longing that something wasn't done that mm -hmm. needed to be done we're going to take a quick break and then i'll be back with more with caitlin doty when we come back in just a moment You give a number of examples of how around the world it's very common for the family to interact with the corpse, to wash and dress the body as part of the grieving process. One of the most interesting and amazing ones is this remote village in Indonesia where the corpse actually 
lives with the family sometimes, I guess, for years before they put it to rest? How do they do that? Is it like weekend at Bernie's or what is that like? <laughs> uh, you, you went know, there yourself. I, I was like, it, right? oh, it's not like weekend at Bernie's. Actually, it sort of is like weekend at Bernie's <laughs> because what they do is when the person dies, they believe that the person is still alive. They have a they have a fever. They're not quite dead yet. And they're <laughs> still present somehow. And they mummify the body through the old method is through teas and, and tanning and, and these old techniques. The modern way is just good old embalmers, <laughs> formaldehyde like we would use in the U.S., and the body lives in the home and wow. they bring it food, they dress it. Sometimes they sleep in the same room as the body. And even going there, even with my many years of doing this job and being close to dead bodies, I was thinking, well, this is a little too far for me. <laughs> but when you go there, it's just so normal. It doesn't, it, you know, we found out that we had been sleeping within 10 feet of a body the whole time we were there and we just didn't know. Where was it? They in didn't the closet? Wanna, no, no, no. It was, in, it was in the little, it was in the house right next door. Oh, okay. And we hadn't known. And then the last day they were like, okay, come in. And we visited the woman and she had only been dead about two weeks, but she was beautiful. And she was wrapped in these beautiful cloths. And she looked very well preserved. And this culture also, they take the bodies out even after the burial happens, after the funeral happens and the burial huh. happens. They bring the mummies out every three years to redress them. And they're taking pictures wow. and putting it on Instagram. And it's just so when you're there, though, I have to say it's beautiful it's normal. It seems like, you know, a 4th of July picnic, basically. It's that <laughs> level of like families coming together in a good old communal way to eat and mm -hmm. celebrate the dead and be with each other. And people come from out of town for this for this mummy gathering. <laughs> and it's it's cool. It's so cool. And I don't think that Americans are ready for that. I'm not proposing <laughs> no. this, just like I'm not proposing communal graves. But there's something to learn from, you know, in America, if mom dies and she's at home, she had a cancer, she's under hospice, mm -hmm. our immediate reaction is, holy crap, call the funeral home right now. Right. We've got to get her out of here. This is an emergency. We're talking about 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. You can sit with your mom for an hour, for two hours, for four hours. You have that power and just take the time to be with her. And the fact that we're so freaked out about it in America and then you go to this rural place in Indonesia and we're talking about years that people can interact <laughs> yeah. with their dead. It's it's like, wow, we are obviously so wildly uptight yeah. about the dead body that, you know, we haven't gotten the memo that it's OK to, to be more comfortable with our dead. Yeah, and I think one of the people that you encountered there said that he and his brother would even sleep with, I think, his grandpa or someone who was you know, a mummy. They would wake him up and then dress him and prop him up, I guess, on a chair or up against the wall or something. This was our guide. This was the, the gentleman yeah. who was with us the whole time and really got us into these, you know, amazing, unique scenarios. And we, you know, we asked him at some point, hey, is this something that you've ever had experience with? And he just casually was like, oh, yeah, no, we, we lived with my grandpa for like seven years when we my, when my brother and I were younger. And I was like, oh, right. This is and this is a guy that we'd gotten to know. And it's just this like 
you know, he's not, I, I guess that I keep saying normal because I think people's expectation mm-hmm. is like, you must be like psycho. You know, you must be like Norman Bates keeping well, yeah. mom in yeah. your house. Yeah. You know, you must yeah. be a, a twisted irrelevant. character of some sort. <laughs> yeah, like, definitely nope, in this these culture. Are, these are real normal folk. <laughs> now, not everything is steeped in tradition in the old ways. Um, modern day Japanese tend to be early adopters of all the hot technology. How has that translated to their funeral practices as well? Japan, I think, is the model of what America could be Hmm. because they not only still respect the dead body and want to interact with it and wash it and dress it and have those beautiful rituals, but they also welcome technology. Whereas in America, if if you're a funeral director, it's like, oh, we have to get a a Facebook page? I don't know about that. You know, that's their relationship with technology. Yeah. Where in Japan, they have, so for example, they have a a columbarium, which is where you keep cremated remains or ashes. They have one right off the subway by the sumo <laughs> stadium. And you go in on your lunch break and you have a little tap card, like a sort of subway card or credit card. And you go to this this little kiosk and there's a grave there with an empty hole in the middle. And you tap your card and it goes boop, 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 boop. And it takes about 45 seconds to a minute for a robot to go retrieve your mother's ashes and (laughs) shoot down the ashes. And it slides into the grave right in the hole with your mom's name on it. And you can light incense and just spend time in this little module praying, talking to mom, being there. And... It, it seems a little futuristic and a little a little cold, maybe. Yeah. But the fact is, is that people were having to travel hours outside of Tokyo to visit these grave sites, mm-hmm. and it takes too long. Yeah. And in Japan, it's really important that you visit the dead. And so if you're not visiting the dead, you're not doing it right, basically. <laughs> so the fact that yeah. that's so modern and so centralized means that it's a busy place and yeah. people are interacting. And that's... That's what cemeteries are supposed to be. That's what cemeteries were in America. The mm-hmm. first cemeteries we had, people, the ones outside the city, people would go and have carriage races and picnics and just <laughs> hang out in the cemetery. Yeah. And that's Well, they, in, they predate parks, don't they? They do. In many, in many communi- larger communities, they were the early version of what would become Central Park or exactly. you know, various a lot public people, areas. Most people don't know that, that, yeah. that the cemetery was the, the prototype for the big American urban park. Yeah, and you mentioned in the book, I guess there's another place in Japan with these light-up Buddhas. Explain that, because I found that really intriguing and, and so unbelievably Japanese at the yes. same time. <laughs> it was one of my favorite places that I went on this whole tour of the world. And it's a it's a columbarium, also a place they keep ashes. But here, it's 360 degrees, a big circle of light-up LED Buddhas, crystal Buddhas with the ashes behind them. And when you come in, you also have a little tap card that you tap and boop, boop, boop. And it lights up your person, your Buddha, you know, your father or whoever. And it glows and pulses this white light on that Buddha. And then all the other Buddhas light up a different color. So it's like your dad is in focus and you can go straight to him and say hi and pray and whatnot. And it's also a place where the monk who runs it is this incredibly he's he looks like an old school monk. He's guy he's an older man with yeah, the robes. The and, exactly. But he's this remarkable innovator 
who every morning he goes and he types in the day that it is, you know, May 4th or whatever. And everybody who died that day starts glowing on the walls. Their Buddhas light up. Mm. And he sits there and he prays for them and he thinks about technology and Buddhism and how we can combine those and create new death ritual and new places to keep the dead. And I was just, wow, this guy is a kindred spirit. I, <laughs> I want to be just like this guy when I grow up. Yeah, and that's important and kind of a comfort, I suppose, because in Japan, you have this aging population that doesn't have enough children to care for them. And the idea that at least someone would still remember you and pray for you after you're gone, even if you don't have any offspring, is probably a, a very comforting idea to many people. It is. This this priest, Yajima, his idea was these Buddhas are like your afterlife community. Mm. And they have this problem in Japan. They, they call it, I think it's kodokushi, which is the lonely death, which means that you you know, that people don't find you for a while because you're older and you don't have any children and you're not married. And they have crime scene cleanup people who specialize in these older people who just aren't found. Oh. And these are the type of people that if oh. you have a reserved a place in this Buddha place, they welcome you in after the cremation and they pray for you every day, even though there's there's not anybody else who who can pray for you. You know, we were just talking about how Halloween is upon us, and along with that comes the Mexican Day of the Dead. Um, I was interested in the evolution of the Mexican Day of the Dead over the past 50 years from something that was sort of frowned upon in Mexico and relegated to remote villages to this widely celebrated uh, cultural event over just the past half century. I always thought that it was much more ingrained. How did Dios de los Muertos go mainstream in Mexico? You know, I thought that, too. I thought it was this very ancient tradition in Mexico, and it is. But at a certain point, it became something that people in the in the deep boonies practiced. And it was in, in places like Mexico City, which were these big modernized, slightly westernized cities. It was seen as superstitious and a place that that people in rural areas did. And then at a certain point, Halloween, back to Halloween, came down and was infiltrating Mexico as a holiday as well. And all of these cultural critics in the 1970s were saying, wait a second, this is American version of a relationship with death. We have our own version of a relationship with death in Mexico, and we should be celebrating that. So over the next 30 years... Even in big cities where they never really celebrated Dias de los Muertos, <laughs> they're bringing it in and they're bringing it and making it part of Mexican culture. And the most stunning example of this is when I first arrived in Mexico City for Dias de los Muertos, there was this huge parade right in Mexico City that was the Dias de los Muertos parade. And it was just the most amazing spectacle you've ever seen. The skeletons dancing down the street and shooting cannons of confetti. And it was just incredible. And it turned out this was a parade that had also been featured in the James Bond, the most recent James Bond movie. And you Spectre. would think, Spectre, right. yeah. And you would think <laughs> that this big parade, you know, they had gone, the producers had gone down, seen the parade and wanted to put it in their movie. No, no. They had made it up for their movie. And then the Mexican government in Mexico City was like, oh, geez, we got to really make this parade. Yeah. People are going to think this is a thing in yeah. Mexico City. And so they spent like, you know, something like 
a year and like 7,000 volunteers planning this massive spectacle parade to to show. So it was James Bond. It was Hollywood that made this parade. <laughs> but I do think that Mexico is really proud of this aspect of their culture. And they they want to show the world that they they have this colorful, beautiful, um, intimate relationship with death. And I think that just by how many people in America are trying to co-opt it a little bit, it shows how much we wish we had something like that. Yeah, and you talk about the benefits of that intimate relationship with death. Um, I think you even have a specific example of a friend of yours uh, who I think she lost a baby and found some solace in reconnecting with these aspects of death in her own Mexican culture, like Dios de los Muertos and the paintings of Frida Kahlo. Uh, how did this help her grieving process? So this is my friend, Sarah Chavez, who is Mexican-American, grew up in East Los Angeles, and she'd always known about her Mexican heritage, but she wasn't allowed to fully practice it, as many you know, immigrants to America really aren't. And she lost a child in a very tragic way, and she went down to Mexico for Day of the Dead the first time, I believe, three or four years ago, and was like, wait a second, look at this. Everybody, you know, when we went to one of these big, beautiful cemeteries, there were people who had lost babies 20 years ago, but the grave was still fully decorated with candles and flowers and offerings. And they were sitting there and they were talking about their babies and showing pictures of their babies. And here in America, she wasn't allowed to talk about her child dying at all. It freaked people out. It bummed them out. It made them feel threatened about their own mortality. Nobody wants to hear about a child dying. But for the parents of these children, it's a tragedy because parents, when you have a child, you want to show off your child. I don't have any children, but I know enough about social media to know that what people want is to share this beautiful experience of having a child. But when you lose that child, it's like you just get cut off. You don't get to talk about the child. You don't get to speak its name if you no longer are a mother by our standards. And that's horrible. And so when she went to Mexico and saw how much people were accepting of the death of any human, of any human, and wanting to talk about it and wanting to keep up a relationship with the dead person publicly, that's what really change things for her in her perception. What do we lose here in America when we cut out all of these rituals that require us to interact with the body and cultural traditions that actually acknowledge and celebrate our ancestors? Yeah, that's that's the core of what I do. I think we lose so much and it's so heartrending because it's so easy to get back. It's right at the tip of our fingers. It's legal and safe to do all of these things. And yet we have a funeral industry and a culture that's acting as a gatekeeper and telling us not to do it. But I think that when you sit with a dead body, just a natural dead body, say back to the example of your mom dying under hospice care at home, not only do you get to see these little subtle changes in this woman that you loved and realize that she's dead and she's not coming back and you have to start your grieving process, you get to also think about your own mortality mm -hmm. and the fact that you one day are going to die. And as this woman is dead, you too will be dead one day. And you also get to grieve for 
the the world, humanity, everybody else that you didn't. It's this safe space to really think about death and grieve and grieve all the losses you didn't get to have this intimate relationship with. It's this sacred time, whether you're secular or deeply religious, and it should be respected. And we just aren't doing a good job of letting people know that that is available to them. You say in the book that not everyone is supportive of the way you run your funeral home. You're something of a disruptor to the industry. Um, Tell us how you operate differently. Let's say I come in with my dead relative and I'm grieving. What are my options? What do you say to me? I like this idea of you coming in with just like (laughs) over your shoulder or something. Yeah, yeah. Here's dad. (laughs) Here we go. Brought him in. (laughs) Um, Well, we just we start with the premise that you know what you want and you know what's best. We can't we can suggest mm-hmm. things, but we start with the premise that you are the driving force of what's happening. So if you want to just keep dad at home, we we originally start thought that we were going to do a lot more going into people's homes and helping them prepare the body in the home. Mm-hmm. We don't do that that much because when you give people the knowledge and the permission, they just do it themselves. You might say, really? you know what, we, we'll, we'll tell you, hey, if your dad dies at home, yeah. you just give us a call whenever. You know, if you have any questions, by all means, call us. But until you're ready, and you might call wow. us three hours later, you might call us 24 hours later, you might call us two days later. You just take the time you need. Invite people over, hang out, have a beer, talk <laughs> about what a great guy dad was or what mm-hmm. a shit dad was, you know, depending on how you <laughs> feel about him. And that's on that's on you. That's your personal choice. And then if you want to show up, we have a green cemetery that we partner with in Joshua Tree that does the natural burial we were talking about. Right. If you want to go in and you want to dig that dirt and put it right on the shrouded body. Wow, you can you do, do that. that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you're out in the desert and you're putting that dirt right on the body. If you want to show up at the cremation and push the button to to light up the machine, we want you to you do that. You have that right. We have you have that right mm-hmm. and we encourage you to do it. Mm-hmm. And so I think just the thing that sets us apart is that we start with the idea that yeah, we're the professionals, we have the licenses, we're legally allowed to to offer this service, but you know what's best for mm-hmm. your own family and for your own dead loved ones. I have to ask then, how do you want to go when you die? <laughs> I think it changes. I, yeah. I always try and keep an up-to-date document on my computer <laughs> of what I want. But um, right now, I would love just um, to practice what I preach and mm-hmm. have a, a wake at home and then a natural burial. Okay. Just my body straight in the earth. The idea of decomposing and having being food for worms, I find incredibly comforting. I think it's beautiful. <laughs> I think it's, um, I, I'm not a religious person, so it's kind of my own religion, mm-hmm. the idea of, of going back into the earth where I came from. And so, yeah, that brings me a lot of comfort. Yeah. And I'm not excited to die, <laughs> but if I do die, I, I think that, that I would be pleased that that's how I went. Well, there's one option that I don't think is allowed right now in America. But you say if you given your druthers, you would go for what's called a sky burial, oh, right? Yes, or a yes, sky yes. funeral. Yeah. What, <laughs> what I, is that? If I really had what I yeah. wanted, um, I would. I wouldn't even be buried. I would be laid out above the ground to be eaten okay. by animals. Yeah, and that's a <laughs> that's a thing that they do in India. They do it in Tibet. Yeah. So it's happening right now. It's not like some ancient thing. Um, but the idea of you know I. I don't eat a lot of meat now, but I, mm-hmm. I used to eat all, all the meat 
and I've eaten animals, and yeah, I'm an animal. Back, circle of yeah, life. Yeah, exactly. I'm an animal. <laughs> I'm an organic creature on yeah. this planet. And when I die, I think we got to, yeah. you know, pay it forward, give it back. <laughs> and um, it's such a, it's, you know, it's very visceral, the idea yeah. of, and we don't like to think of ourselves as animals. That's yeah. not a fun thing for humans. <laughs> but if we want to talk about the reality of our planet and our our cycle of life and our place in the universe, we have to acknowledge that we too are animals and that maybe we should not be locking mm-hmm. our bodies up in fortresses underground, not anywhere near the earth yeah. around it, but that we go back and contribute. Yeah, Sky Funeral sounds really nice. I mean, if you sell someone on the Sky Funeral option, <laughs> then they, then they the, ask, well, well, by the way, what is it? Yeah, how do you go? Do you just oh, shoot, my bones shoot you are up apart into the sky? Uh, vultures. vultures, yes. Vultures oh, okay. eat you and carry you up into the sky. Yeah. Got it. Um, you know, but again, cultural relativism. It depends yeah. on where you're from right. and how, yeah. you know, to, to, to someone in Tibet, the idea of putting you in a big industrial crematory is like, ugh, why would you do that when the vultures take your body into the sky? You know, so it's all it's all where you're from and how you look at it. I'm curious, is there any regulation that says I couldn't have a Viking funeral where they, you know, where they traditionally <laughs> set you off in a boat and then set the boat on fire? There's a couple problems is with this. Problem? I hate, I don't want to uh-huh. burst your bubble here at the end, but the problem, one, is that that's really more of a Hollywood conception oh. than real, oh, real, that's real not a history. Real thing? Not, oh, not so much. Man. I mean, there's some records of it being done, but it's not really the, the thing they traditionally did. Okay. And the second issue is that, you know, with a pyre, they continuously add wood throughout oh, right. the process. So if you're just in like a dinghy, <laughs> what happens is the boat out. burns up like that yeah. and then you have your half-charred body okay. kind of bobbing around in the water. Um, so it's not quite as romantic. But you know what? If you had, say you were cremated first and then we could mm-hmm. put your ashes on a boat yeah. and then set your, I know it's not as fun, <laughs> but like you could still set something on fire, which is yeah, fun, okay. and push that yeah. out and then you're at, if you want to do a sea yeah. scattering, instead of scattering it, yeah. you set it out on a little flaming boat I want and a then the boat funeral. burns. <laughs> You know, okay. It's the so coast what, bro- Isn't it the Coast Guard's do, problem at that point if it doesn't do burn? <laughs> is we could build you a pyre on okay. a boat. Oh, okay. So we'd have okay. to, you know, it'd be hard, but. Okay, this is complicated. You know, I want you to okay. live your death dream. Well, before we go, I just have to ask this. This has been the burning question that's been on my mind since I started reading this book. In the movies, especially in war movies, they always talk about the stench of death. As a mortician, tell me honestly, what does a real dead body smell like? Okay, so a real dead body for the first two or three days, people always think a body's immediately decomposing after they die. Mm -hmm. They're not. You have a nice little period of time, especially if you put the body on some ice. You have a nice long time where it's totally fine and you can't even really, they just kind of look like they're sleeping. You're fine. Okay. But if a body isn't put under refrigeration and isn't found for three or four days, yeah, decomposition is a smell that you do not forget. It's it's I describe it as like a bucket of orange peels and fish like left out in the sun with some white wine on it. It's just this sickly sweet licorice. Really? Yeah, it's sweet, but not oh, wow. in a good way, not in like a lollipop way, like in a wow. in a sickly uh licorice. I mean, if you've ever walked by a dumpster yeah. and gotten that hit of that really yeah. sickly, sweet, rotting yeah. meat or fruit or garbage smell, uh-huh. it's 
kind of like that, except uh, except oh. a human. It's not my favorite part of the job. <laughs> let's say that. Does it smell kind of ammonia-y? Um, it can, um, but I think it's a very it's a very natural smell that we kind of yeah. put in. It. It's weird because you try and <laughs> at a certain point it gets to the fridge or it gets to the morgue, mm-hmm. and you're putting it in this sort of medicalized environment. But it's just this piece of of <laughs> rotting rotting meat. Of course, it was a human, but at that point nature has taken over, and yeah. it's this sort of wow. What a fun note to end on. I was just going to say, you know, <laughs> what a great thing for everyone who just listened to this podcast before they go to lunch. So, yeah, exactly. You usually note. have such nice, normal people on your podcast. And... Well, it's been a delight nonetheless. The book is called From Here to Eternity, Traveling the World to Find Good Death. Caitlin Doty, thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks again to Caitlin Doty for coming on the podcast. Order her book, From Here to Eternity, Traveling the World to Find Good Death on Amazon, or download the audiobook at audible.com. Check out her popular Ask a Mortician videos on YouTube. Visit CaitlinDoty.com for more information or orderofthegooddeath.com and follow Caitlin on Twitter at, at @thegooddeath. Also, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass News on Apple Podcasts and rate and review us while you're there. And please take a moment to take our listener survey at podsurvey.com kick so we can get to know who's listening and it's also helpful with our advertisers. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at at kickassnewspod. And as always, I welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions at comments at kickassnews.com. For now, though, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass News. Kick-Ass News is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.